On this week's prequel episode, we follow up on our Carrie listener polls, learn about Catherine Patterson, and preview Bridge to Terabithia. Hello, welcome back to another episode of This Film is Lit, the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. It's another prequel episode. Boy, it's been a while. Yeah, Holy cow. It feels, it's only been two weeks. It's only, well, yeah. th- like three since we recorded or four. It's been a True. while since we yes. recorded an episode. Yes. But holy cow, it feels like an eternity. When you've like been doing been an episode every week for six yeah, years. Taking a couple weeks off. Taking feels a few like, weeks off feels like an eternity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like an eternity. But we have returned from our honeymoon. We had a great time out uh, in California. We are back, ready to get back into it, and we're going to start with you, all of your listener. Well, before we get to our listener feedback for the carry poll, sorry, I messed that up. It's I I forgot what I'm doing at this point. <laughs> First, we're going to get in to our patron shoutouts. I put up with you because your father and mother were our finest patrons. That's why. So we don't have any new paying patrons, but Patreon changed a bunch of stuff while we were gone. And so you can now (laughs) become a free patron, basically, where you only get access to, like, public posts on Patreon, which I don't know how often we even post public posts. I don't know if I've ever posted a public post. I I I have occasionally. Was it even an option before this? Yes. Yeah. There there has been an option where you could post things publicly, like, where it's it's for free for anybody, basically. Mm -hmm. But I assume what these free patrons are is that they get, like, notifications when we post free posts okay. which again yeah, we yeah, don't yeah. do very much yeah um but there are some things that um because you can also do things where you like post things for paid patrons and then a set a time thing where they eventually become like public posts or whatever uh, i don't know hmm. anyways we have four new free patrons uh, i figured i'd read them anyways because you know if they like our podcast enough to come at least come find us on patreon and subscribe to us you know we'll say your name even though you're not giving us any money it's okay <laughs> They are Karyaka, Karyaka, not sure how to pronounce that, The Damn Bookworm, Mikey S., and Chiniqua Brio. Bro? Brio? It looks French. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. I mean, it's definitely French, <laughs> I think, but I'm not sure how you pronounce that. So thank you all for uh, following us for free on Patreon, I guess. So there you go. All right, let's get into it. Our Academy Award winners, and they are Vic Hammer, Matilde, Steve from Arizona, Paul. Jeff Niederhofer, Teresa Schwartz, Ian from Wine Country, Winchester's Forever, Kelly Napier, Gray Hightower, Gratch, Just Gratch, Shelby's in her Capybara era, That Darn Skag, V. Frank, and Alina Starkov. Thank you all for continuing to support us, even during our brief hiatus. I'm sure several of our meals were paid for by your your generous support while we were on our honeymoon. So there you go. Katie, it's time to find out what the people had to say about Carrie. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. The people had to say quite a bit. Lots to say. Uh, Mostly on Patreon. We have a ton of long comments Mm -hmm. from Patreon. Um, So on Patreon, we had six votes for the book, zero for the movie, which astounded me. Um, At least not in the actual, like, poll poll. Um, I think there might be a comment oh, that's for the okay. movie, but the it doesn't actually, yeah, it doesn't actually it was not it. reflected in the actual poll. Um, and then a listener who could not decide. Okay. Uh, Kelly Napier said, "OMG, for the first time in forever, for I finally I finally got that song out of my head." I love that song. 
Uh, uh, hot take. That's the best song from Frozen. Uh, okay, well we can hot take that. I don't know if it's a hot point. take or not, but that is uh, my, in my opinion, the best song from Frozen. Uh, uh, so Kelly said, "For the first time in forever, I finally have the same verdict as you." Wow. Kelly disagreed this with us very often, several yeah. episodes yeah. in a row. Yeah. Uh, I also picked the book over the movie, and I agree with you that the book and the movie feel more like a tragedy than a horror. I wasn't really scared when I was reading slash watching, but as a slightly outcast individual myself in high school, I felt the tragedy of what they all did to her very deeply in my soul. I agreed with you that the portrayal of Billy in the book was much better than in the movie. In the book, he's crafty and duplicitous. You see him make his friends be the ones to get the pig's blood so his fingerprints aren't on the buckets, and you see him straight out tell Chris to her face that he can go to California with her while acknowledging internally that he would never take her with him. Okay, so I, I took... Okay, that's that's John Travolta's character. Yes. So it's been, uh, just in case people have... D- d- it's been this. a month since we, since we did this. It hasn't been a month. It's been three weeks. Okay, it feels like forever. Again, it, it feels it's like, like really so long, long that I'm, I'm, I'm doing my... I'm going to have to do my best to remember all this. I was like, Billy, Billy. I think that's John yeah, Travolta's character. Yeah, that's John Travolta's character. Uh, Leaning hard into the idea of how consuming religious zealotry can be, I love the detail in the book that no church was extreme enough for Carrie's mom. I also liked the narration style of alternating between current events and publications from after the events. Mm. It led us to know exactly what the outcome of the night in question, but then we're still left not knowing how we got there. Mm -hmm. Like a scavenger hunt, little bits of information are revealed to us as we go. The biggest thing I liked in the book over the movie was the intentionality behind Carrie's telekinesis. In the movie, it almost felt like she had mm. no control over her power mm-hmm. and was doing things subconsciously. I agree with that. I, I talked. We talked about that from my memory quite mm-hmm. at length in the episode, and I actually liked that in the movie that she kind of just turned into this like force of nature as opposed to. But I thought because I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. But I could see. I could see. The, I, I think I even talked about it in the episode. I can see the merits of both. Yeah. In the book, because we had some of her internal monologue, we can see her testing and growing her control over her power, and then in the final third of the book, we see her make the explicit decisions that led to the deaths of so many. She thinks to herself, I'm going to shut the gym doors so they can't get out. Oh, people are getting out the emergency exit. That's fine. Let them. Or, I'm going to light the gas station on fire so it explodes. Because you could feel the intentionality behind the events, it helped sell the idea of this being a revenge thriller instead of just a girl losing all control. In Carrie's mind, the entire town got what they deserved because the entire town led to the pig's blood moment. I know he's not a needed character, but I missed the character of Chris's dad in the movie. I almost included him in my notes, and yeah. then I didn't want to go into the whole we'll background of mention, like explaining yeah. what his deal was. Um, but I, I agree with this. It was nice to see a little background of how Chris got to be so spoiled and entitled. Plus, I thought he was funny. So her, Chris's dad is a lawyer mm-hmm. in the book. And when she gets in trouble for the opening like uh, shower mm-hmm. scene, mm-hmm. Um, he like his her dad like comes down to the school and is like, oh, I'm going to see you guys, blah, 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 for the way that you're treating my daughter, blah, 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 blah. And the principal, like, calls his bluff and is like, well, then we're going to counter sue you for this and that. 
Um, and he basically like runs off with his tail between mm. his legs. Mm. Um, it, he's like a bit character. He's yeah. really only in that part, but I thought he was kind of interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Kelly went on to say, I also liked how much the book explained that Carrie's abilities are genetic and then ends with a little epilogue of one of Carrie's relatives, who's a little girl who also has the power. Hmm. So the story isn't truly over. This could happen again. The movie almost made it feel like her powers stemmed from her circumstances and not her genetics. Yeah, I mean, I I would have said, I would have, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have guessed. I don't yeah. think the movie applies at all, like where her powers come no, from. No, I, I, no, I don't. And, think and it I is. think I agree with with Kelly that if I if you would have asked me, like, okay, so like, what is her power? I'd be like, maybe something to do with like her kind of weird religious trauma upbringing or something. Yeah. You know, like I would not definitely would not have assumed right. the, there was anything the genetic going of, on. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the stressors of the way that her life is definitely don't help. Right in the book, um, I think that is something that like brings her powers out more. You know, we have this kind of idea that if she had had a really good life, maybe she would have never needed to, like, manifest or use the powers that she has, maybe. Mm -hmm. Who knows? But it's it's interesting either way. I can see the merits of both depictions. Uh, and finally, Kelly went on to say, so I made the mistake of watching this at work. <laughs> I hit play on the movie and started panicking with that locker room scene off the top. Luckily, I get to work early, so not many people are around. But man, that was a close one. I guess you're maybe you're watching it on a personal thing or not on the work. I don't know. I guess I guess I, I would I would worry if I was at work, even if nobody was around that. Like, yeah. IT would be like watching <laughs> or something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, and I believe Kelly actually works at a news station from last i knew yes so i i kind of like the idea that maybe she threw it up on like a big screen somewhere <laughs> yeah at the news station well, yeah. <laughs> yeah if you haven't worked at a news station it's very common in the newsroom there are tvs everywhere yes, so everywhere i would, I would uh, yeah it would be funny if she had had it on like one of the big like one of the big monitors the big monitors in the, <laughs> in the newsroom or something um and then kelly had uh, two questions um, she said, just two probably unanswerable questions. In the book, it's implied that Sue might be pregnant. She's also one of the only survivors. Was she actually pregnant? Did she have Tommy's baby? And I believe Shelby answered this um, for Kelly on okay. Patreon. Um, but she gets her period at the very end of the book. Mm. Um, so we don't know whether or not for sure yeah. she was pregnant. I mean, she's not pregnant by the end of it. Right. She gets her period. Right. But um, I kind of got the implication at the end that as she was dying, Carrie like helped her not be pregnant, like caused her to have like an abortion. What? Like with her powers. Oh, okay. Cause she starts, she gets her period like, right after carrie dies and it's like thematic and like full it's like a full circle kind right, of a right, thing yeah but i was kind of like head cannoning for myself that carrie was like oh i'm gonna help you out take care of that because <laughs> you helped you. me yeah <laughs> um, and then uh, kelly's last question here why would anyone actually vote for carrie for prom queen if she was that much of a pariah in the school and town in the movie, we know some people had actually voted for them because Chris didn't swap out all the ballots. In the book, we know Chris didn't fix the vote at all, so those people actually voted for her. Were they voting for her because she was paired with Tommy on the ballot? I know where I grew up, people took homecoming and prom court too seriously to vote for anyone hmm. as a joke. Um, so there's a couple of, of layers here based on what I remember from the book, at least. 
she does get on the ballot just because she's Tommy's date. Like they say yes. specific. Yeah. yeah, they say specifically that that's how that works because they went together. So therefore she's on the ballot because of him. Right. There's also like this layer in the book of like people not taking the voting super seriously mm. um, because this is set in the 70s. And I think we're getting at a kind of like a women's lib like second wave mm, feminism okay. thing there's yeah. this there are mentions here and there of like people saying that oh we should stop doing this um it's offensive to women so there is this kind of air of like oh this is stupid okay in the book yeah um also it's convenient yeah for her to get elected prom queen <laughs> I, I in the I, I don't remember this from the movie, but she says in the movie we know some people had actually vote for them because Chris didn't swap out all the ballots, but she did swap out a lot of them. She swapped out a lot of them, yeah. So how do we know? I don't I don't I remember don't this detail. I, yeah, from I don't the movie remember that detail either. Like all I remember from the movie is that she, they swapped out like a lot of yeah, the ballots enough to get them. her to win at least. Yeah. That, <laughs> I, yeah, I don't I don't I don't remember it being mentioned that other people had voted for her for real, but yeah, I unless I don't remember if they say at some point that it was like unanimous or something in the movie. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't. Yeah, I don't remember. I don't remember at all. Our next comment was from Steve from Arizona. Uh, Steve said, "I'm not a big Stephen King fan, despite sharing the same first name and the same weirdness. So the movie wins by default. I don't know. His horror stories just don't resonate with me, while his stories like Dreamcatcher or The Running Man do." Hmm. It could be the science fiction adjacent stories, but I, for one, believe many of his stories are benefited by a discerning eye looking to make his stories more accessible. Like, we don't need every graphic detail of someone killing a pig, Steve. I would agree with that, yeah. <laughs> I do agree a more feminist viewpoint might be needed for a better remake. And I got the filmmaker for you. Julia DeCourneau? Mm. DeCourneau? Mm -hmm. I don't know how to pronounce it, but... Um, her two main films, Raw and Titan, Titan. Titan I don't know, how it's French. I um, tackle all of all of the difficult sexuality and identity conversations that would have made Carrie's mother turn red with rage. She also would have made the viewer completely uneasy with each pressing moment into the film, making the climax of the film gruesome and edgy. I have not seen either of the films, but I've heard a lot about Titan or however you pronounce it, and mm -hmm. it sounds really interesting, and I'm sure I would like it. Everything I've heard about it is that it's very good and really interesting kind of... So I think it's about a woman who has a relationship with a car or something. Like, it's very mm -hmm. strange, like... Interesting. Uh, eccentric sci-fi, like kind of like Cronenbergian from what I've, again, from what little I've heard about it. Um, very eccentric. Yeah. Like um, esoteric sci-fi yeah. kind of thing. Uh, but it sounds, I, I, I actually, Titan or whatever has been on my list to, to watch for a while. So I'm sure it would be interesting. <laughs> And Steve's last comment here was, and also I love Brian De Palma. Not only has this man given us over-the-top nonsense like Carrie and Phantom of the Paradise and Mission to Mars, he's given us some solid films like Blowout, Carlito's Way, and The Untouchables. Brian's exacerbation is very similar to mine. Like, how could you squander the obvious talent you have? All in all, a great episode. To be fair, I don't know if he's squandering it. He's uh, okay, at least, Especially, at least according to you, I've not seen any of those other films. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm aware of, obviously... All of, I defer to blow out. I 
particularly uh, know about The Untouchables and Carlito's Way, but yeah, I, I actually when I was doing research on this movie and kind of looking about stuff about Brian De Palma, Car- uh, Blowout kept coming up and over and over again. Um, and so, yeah, I'm not sure I would say that he's squandering his talent because making a lot of real interesting movies that people mm-hmm. connect with. So I wouldn't say that's squandering, but it is one of those things that it is. And I, I, I get what Steve's saying, though. I think that it's like it's like at least with this movie, it's so many things go back and forth. But I, I, somebody mentioned later, he also did Mission Impossible, the first Mission mm-hmm. Impossible movie, which to me doesn't have the same sort of like inconsistent. Yeah. Like quality that this movie I mean, has there's like a 20 year gap in there though right true so. yes mission impossible was like the midnight and late late mid late 90s yeah. whereas this was the 70 whatever yeah so yeah he had matured a lot as a filmmaker at, in that point like it's great uh, yeah I, I can't even begin to imagine how especially somebody working in the industry how much you would mature as a as a film like the the amount i have changed and grown as somebody who making you know movies videos commercials whatever in a much shorter period mm-hmm. of time um, is wild. So I can't fathom being, you know, a 20 year difference while working like literally in the industry. I'm sure. Yeah. You would change a ton, uh, but it is, it is, um, like I said, mission impossible to me was like, from my memory, it's been a long time since I've watched it, but it did not have the same sort of inconsistencies, but that makes sense. Cause yeah, this is a much earlier film. You're mm-hmm. experimenting yeah. more. You're figuring out your style. You're figuring out what works and what doesn't. So, interesting an interesting filmmaker (laughs) our next comment was from terror bithia uh, who said sometimes you can tell when an author it's on theme for our uh, next episode it is and i I believe this patron also commented on our uh, announcement post about that yeah Yeah. Um, they said sometimes you can tell when an author or a director wanted to do one particular thing and had to do the rest of the work to support it De Palma clearly wanted to do the last 35 minutes of Carrie, but couldn't just make it a short film or a long one of the last third. There would be no stakes, no explanation. So he had to do the lead in, but he doesn't seem invested in it, except as a way to justify hmm. the filming of the death and destruction. Hmm. Choosing the book on this one, say what you like about works showing their age, and they all do eventually, but that's another diatribe. At least King seemed to have maintained his interest throughout the creation. I, I, I will say I don't know if I agree with that. Um, I, I, I don't think it's at least the way I interpret the film isn't so much that De Palma wasn't interested in the first two thirds of it, but just that didn't have as clear of a vision for the first two thirds of it. I think yeah. he had a very clear vision for the final third because yeah. I, I think it comes through so uh, strikingly again for you know the final third of the film. But I never got the feeling that the first part was disinterest, more so as just like not really sure how to handle all of the kind mm-hmm. of disparate he elements just of it. Struggle bust his way through it. To some extent, yeah. That just kind of like and, and tried to find I think part of it is that De Palma is a very um stylized filmmaker. It likes to likes to lean into kind of stylistic choices in his direction and, and specifically like visual direction in the film. And the first two thirds of the movie doesn't really lend itself to that as much. Or, mm-hmm. And so he kind of tried to force it in there where he could and kind of tried to find ways to make the first two thirds more interesting. And like, again, talking about that shot of the boy, like weaving in and out of the trees and like the cutting back and forth in a way that to me just didn't quite work, uh, even though I could kind of tell what he was going for. Um, you know, some of that stuff that where he's making creative decisions, I think to try to like, add some energy and some 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 interesting 
again, visual storytelling to the first two thirds of the film in a way that just doesn't quite work. Whereas the final third of the film is just ready built for that kind of all in like Mm -hmm. visual drama that he would was wanting to do the whole time. Uh, And so it just fits for the final third. And again, that would be my assessment of it less so um, disinterest and more so kind of not uh, trying to, to, to inject some, some personality into the first two thirds in a way that it just didn't always work. But anyways, I I, I can also see what you're saying that it kind of at times, I mean, when he's literally fast forwarding through parts of his movie, yeah. you get, I, I think you get... there are definitely at least points in that first part yeah. of the film where it feels like he's not particularly yeah. interested in what he's doing. Yeah, I can see that. Our next comment was from Shelby's in her Capybara era. Uh, Shelby said, I want to start with a disclaimer. I am one ace. Asexuality is not a single uniform experience. There's been some research about asexuality, but most of what we have and know are from aspec people sharing their lived experiences. But multiple people living the same experience doesn't mean it's the only one. Mm -hmm. The most basic stereotype about ace people and therefore ace passing characters is person who doesn't like sex. But there's another group of people who are known to have strong opinions about abstaining from sex christians this is true boy is it um because christianity is more familiar to people and other religious sects to be fair but in america in the west christians is like the predominant yes yes (laughs) yeah Uh, because christianity is more familiar to people it's become a stereotype that aspec people are just super christians who are really Hmm. vocal about not having sex and call themselves asexuals as a kind of flex to brag about how pure they are interesting Because of this, some people associate asexuality with Christian ideals about sex. Aces are just abstaining until marriage. Aces are struggling with desire as much as the rest of us, and they think they deserve special recognition for their restraint. I will say, you know, just to chime in real quick, because I I don't want to add too much to this, because, again, I I don't think I have a lot of really interesting things to add. But I will say that I I don't that is not for me. I'm sure I have some misconceptions and stereotypes. I, I know I do bouncing around about ace people and all kinds of, you know, uh, minoritized groups that I'm not yeah. like super familiar with. Um, but but that is not one to me that connects with my kind of like cultural perception of mm-hmm. ace people is that I would have never. And maybe that's because I'm coming from a very secular kind of yeah. progressive background. Maybe that has to do with it. But I to me, I have never kind of identified or never those two stereotypes had never mixed in my head the idea of ace people as like kind of super like christian or like um super or having some sort of like super christian ideals about sex or anything like that that is not my experience of the ace people that i've interacted with in uh you know in my life over the years have never come from that background or at least not that i'm aware of have never like that's never been part Um, of their background or whatever so to me it's always been i'm just i'm again just real quick i'm just wrapping to me it's always been more of um not more but i'm just saying that that is for me that has never been a i'm not i'm not saying that's not i'm just saying for that is interesting to hear because that is not something i typically would have yeah like i don't know that's not like the the social construction or brain like uh conception of of ace people that i have yeah. i don't know i mean i i would i would agree with you that like that's not been my uh, experience in um like ace people that i've interacted yeah. with 
Um, but the idea of like stereotypes about asexual people getting Mm -hmm. kind of conflated with the like extreme purity culture of Christianity. I think definitely that rings true to me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 I can see. Yeah, for sure. All right. So Shelby went on to say growing up in the church, I too thought I was a super Christian when I was younger. Man, the devil has no power here. I'm really good at this. (laughs) Turns out I was just ace the whole time. Fun fact, there are some in the church who don't like us because we're supposed to be suffering by abstaining and Mm, we're not. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Um, uh, Mother Teresa would not have enjoyed your your brand of of, of abstinence. Suffer. You're not suffering, you ain't. You're not doing it right. You're not doing it right. Um, According to them, we're not natural. The Lord intended us to suffer. When I I say Margaret White is ace passing in the book, this is what I mean. The biggest change from book to movie here is that in the movie, her husband left her for another woman. In the book, he was just like her. He worked construction, and he was the weirdo with a Bible who kept to himself when he was on the job. In the book, they are both super Christians who are vocal about abstaining from sex while suffering terribly from temptation, because of course they are. For all her bluster, Margaret reveals to Carrie that they both wanted it the whole time. They were liars all along, which is an ace stereotype. Liars or sick or hiding our temptations behind religion. I think as an outsider, King learned of Aspec passing people and conjectured what that's like, and then he wrote about it in Carrie, and briefly in Tommyknockers and Eyes of the Dragon. And then he learned a bit about asexuality and explored it some more in Dr. Sleep and Mr. Mercedes. Those are the ones I know of anyway. If anyone's curious, his best attempt at rep is easily Eyes of the Dragon. Hmm. Other thoughts. What did Dino what Eyes of the Dragon? I I don't. I've actually never heard of that so one. I've never I don't heard know of it either. I've mean, heard of Tommy Knockers, but I yeah. haven't heard of Eyes of the Dragon. Um, other thoughts. I preferred the book. I liked the sections from after the fact previewing what was to come and the tension it built. I liked Carrie wasting the town. <laughs> Sissy Spacek is great in this movie, but I thought Carrie was more layered in the book. I liked the prom scene in the movie and her mom dying like the statue, but I didn't care for the jump scare hand grab like she's a slasher villain. I don't think it fits her character at all. Yeah, I don't know if it necessarily fits her character, yeah. but I believe I read this basically like one of the biggest. This is like maybe the f- one of the first that moment in a horror movie. Oh, really? I thought I That's read funny. somewhere. I could be wrong, but I thought I read somewhere when I was reading this is, again, this was yeah. several weeks ago, but I thought I read when I was reading about this movie, somebody saying that this was basically the movie that started that like end like, of the movie. Like, ha, yeah. the villain is still alive huh. or like this per, you know, like obviously yeah. it's a dream in this, but like that, I that kind of idea. Right. I, again, I could be wrong about and, that. And I honestly, I have to agree with Shelby here. I don't think it really makes sense at the end of this movie. I think you could make an argument for the fact that it's a dream. It's a dream. Yeah. From this like traumatized, Tra- traumatized person. person. Yeah. Um, if it were real, I would hundred percent agree yeah. that it, it doesn't work at all. But since it is this dream, but of this I girl also who's very like traumatized. I think I, it kind of works because I view this as much more of a tragedy yeah than a horror story about like right. a villainous person of course, yeah. I, I i do think it's kind of like okay yeah it's a little yeah no it's fair our last comment on patreon was from charlene 
um, who said, my feelings on omniscient narration are wildly inconsistent. <laughs> this tr- this, look, that's fair. Yeah. There's some, yeah, that's fair. Sometimes it's done well, sometimes it's not. Yeah. Um, sometimes it drives me crazy and it just feels like a lazy way to get information to the reader. Other times it feels perfectly natural to dip into one character's thoughts, thoughts for a bit and then move on. I don't know how much to attribute to a writer's skill or my own reading preferences, and I've felt both ways about King in different books. It does make for a tricky adaptation because you either have to get that information to the viewer in some way, or you decide that it's not crucial and focus on actions and reactions instead of motivation. But then that leads to readers and non-readers feeling very differently based on their Mm. insider knowledge or lack thereof, when really the movie should be able to stand independently from the source material. You guys usually have some differences in perspective because of that. Obviously, that's the whole point of the podcast. But it seemed like there was a lot more of that than usual this week. Yeah, there was. Again, from my memory, there was quite a bit of us kind of yeah. talking about where things where it's like. I oh, mean, I even called it out at yeah, one yeah, point that yeah. we were having a lot of that kind of like differing in and how we viewed specific things based on having more information or not having. Yeah, more specifically, information. the main one that comes to mind was was the um, the te- the gym teacher, mm-hmm. like her. I I thought in the movie that she's like you know handling all of this terribly and is kind of awful. Uh, at least for the beginning part of the film, and then kind of gets better as the movie goes. And since you kind of were in her head and knew yeah. what her what she was dealing with and where she was coming from, you did you were you were much more sympathetic to her. But yeah, it is interesting. Take a shot every time I say interesting, and then die immediately. <laughs> All right, over on Facebook, we had four votes for the book and four for the movie. Um, Greg said, "I'm going to agree with Stephen King himself here." who I believe has stated he prefers the movie to the book, which he regards as one of his lesser works. I agree to varying degrees with many of the criticisms of the film you raise in the episode. It is over-directed at times, there are too many male-gazy shots for my taste, and the use of the psycho strings as a sound cue to something eerie happening must have come across as cheesy even in 1976, and is laughably so now. I would not go so far as to call Brian De Palma a hack. I've probably seen six or seven of his movies, and I think many of the things you noted about Carrie are part of his signature style that reflects a genuine, honest artistic vision rather than an effort to cater to cool commercial sensibilities a la Zack Snyder. Okay. I, part of, I, I agree with everything you said there, uh, mm-hmm. and I think maybe part of it... Uh, I, okay, so first, I, when I call Brian De Palma a hack, I wasn't saying he is a hack. I was saying, is he a hack? I was kind of questioning. But then, you know, we're having that discussion here. Um, I think part of that may be that when I say hack, I, to me, there's no implication of, like, being, like, a sellout or, like, yeah. a... To me, the word hack, when I'm using it there, doesn't imply, like, uh, just trying to appeal to, like... The masses. The masses or anything. Uh To me, hack means, like, I I was using it in terms of, like, it means they're, like, not a good director. And so, Mm -hmm. like, more kind of broadly, it's just, like, do they suck, kind of, basically. (laughs) But hack is just a way to, like... A shorthand way to say that, that I almost always only generally referred to direct. I think I only use that word in relation to directors for some reason. I don't like, I, I mean, wouldn't say that about an actor necessarily or something. I don't know. That's probably good because you're, I don't know if you're qualified to comment on anybody, other performance other than like directing. I, yeah, okay. Yeah, maybe. But <laughs> <laughs> that being said, um, 
I will disagree slightly. I agree entirely that it is very much a part of his signature style that reflects a genuine artistic vision. I also think that genuine artistic vision is at times hacky, mm-hmm. but um, I would disagree slightly in, in your final part about Zack Snyder here, where you say uh, it's a, it, comparing saying De Palma's is a genuine, genuine, honest, artistic vision rather than uh, an effort to cater to quote unquote, cool commercial sensibilities a la Zack Snyder. I don't think I think sometimes Zack Snyder is an attempting to cater to commercial sensibilities. Mm -hmm. But I I think I think Zack Snyder is just a genuinely he I think a lot of what he does, he thinks I think he is also a genuine, honest, like has a genuine, honest vision for the films he makes. And those just happen to be also the kind of things that tend to be like kind of hacky and mainstream and cool. Like he is just nothing if not a man who is informed by every mainstream pop culture like (laughs) uh, property of the last 50 years. And that's what he likes. And so he recreates it in different ways. I don't I think it's very honest. I don't think Zack Snyder is like grifting like i don't think like a sellout yeah i don't think he's grifting or a sellout or like um i don't think he's like i don't want to say intelligent enough for that because that's not what i mean (laughs) it's really it's really not what i mean (laughs) what i mean is that i think he's just very genuine i think he's just also kind of cringe like i think he likes what he likes and what he likes is kind of cringe if you i actually it's so funny that this came up today because i just i just happened to watch the trailer for rebel moon today for the first time which is his netflix movie that's Mm -hmm. he made this big sweeping two-part like netflix epic sci-fi fantasy movie you watch that trailer it's insane it's everything it's Dune, it's Star Wars, it's The Matrix, it's Lord of the Rings, it's it's like every fantasy sci-fi property just <laughs> smushed together, <laughs> and it kind of looks awful, but kind of awesome. Uh-huh. And that is like Zack Snyder to the T to me. It's like, I, I don't think there's anything ungenuine about what he's doing at all. I just think it also is rides the line between being awesome and garbage at the, like, I I just, again, it's why I find him so fascinating. And I think him and and De Palma are similar in that regard. I don't think, I think De Palma has, um, De Palma. I I think the thing that the difference is that the, the references that De Palma's calling on the, the things that De Palma nerds out about is like Hitchcock. It's like other dirt, like, actual like classic directors and like, like stuff that's considered stuff that's art, considered like unquote. high art yeah. and like you know the classics of cinema that's the stuff he's nerdy about whereas Zack Snyder is nerdy about Star Wars and like all this other you know like yeah. he's nerdy about the shit that was that's he, like loud and yeah and, and fun and popcorny yeah. like that's what he's into and so I, I whereas De Palma is into like Hitchcock like so I yeah I don't I don't I truly don't think they're different in that regard. I think they're both very genuine. They're just genuinely into different things. Mm-hmm. But I mean, somebody that I like catering to quote unquote cool commercial sensibilities Michael Bay. Yes. So that's I mean. that is one where I would say Michael Bay is the person who you should be referencing there. I think Michael Bay very much I think he also is genuine to some extent, but I also think he very much will sacrifice his like genuine artistic vision for commercial success. Yeah. 
and for what he thinks will appeal to commercial sensibilities. And I don't necessarily think that's true of Zack Snyder. I just think that a lot of times what Zack Snyder likes tends to kind of be the kind of things that more discerning audience members are like, this is popcorn nonsense bullshit. Mm -hmm. Like this is garbage. Like, but I don't think it's an an ungenuine uh, appeal to those things. I think he just really likes that stuff. Uh, Okay. Uh, So Greg went on to say, um, however, uh, he, uh, Brian De Palma, definitely comes from the same more is more school of filmmaking as people like Baz Luhrmann and Oliver Stone and subtlety isn't his strength. He's always got the pedal to the metal and I found it to be a common thread across his movies that when that works, it really works. But when the material requires a lighter directorial touch, things tend to go off the rails. I would agree with that. And I'm, I like that. I like Moore's more directors. I'm mm-hmm. I, Edgar Wright is my favorite director. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's a more Moore's. I mean, other than like Bos Lerman. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I, I think Edgar Wright is a significantly better and more deft filmmaker than, um, than Bos Lerman in certain ways, but, but definitely both maximalist. Definitely maximalist. And that is the style that I like. That is how I direct things. I am not a minimalist in my style. Like I, I, that is what I'm into. And so I don't dislike the maximalism, uh, the sort of more is more style of filmmaking. If it's, if something is worth doing, it is worth overdoing in my opinion, <laughs> but I just think it has to also work within the film. And there, uh, there are moments where and, and with Baz Luhrmann and Oliver Stone and, 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 uh, Brian De Palma, where the more is more approach doesn't work, which is interesting. Cause I, I rarely feel that about Edgar Wright stuff. I mm-hmm. rarely feel like his sort of, over-directed, over-edited approach doesn't work. Um, whereas in these movies, or whereas in, like, Baz Luhrmann movies very often, and, like, uh, this movie in particular, they're sort of over... Their over-direction and over-production feels incongruous with, the with like, the rest of the film. And maybe it's because Edgar Wright just does it the whole time. Like Edgar Wright never lets off the gas pedal, whereas some of these other movies occasionally do. And that's where I don't know. I don't know what it is. I would have to really think about it. But it does to me feel like there's a difference because to me, Edgar Wright's style always works for the movies he makes. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't work for every movie, obviously, but for the movies he makes, they're tonally perfect throughout. But. In like a uh, like some elements of like Great Gatsby when we did it uh, or um, Moulin Rouge or whatever or or this movie it feels more inconsistent in a way that that to me feels less refined than like what Edgar Wright or some other similar type of directors would do that are similarly maximalists I don't know it's interesting yeah it's a whole it's a whole dis- thing oh, it's a whole that's a whole that's a whole several semesters of, of film classes about <laughs> maximalism in cinema uh greg went on to say as far as the nudity goes i think the initial bit in this movie works as it reflects carrie's vulnerability and struggle with the insecurities and hang-ups resulting from her sexual coming of age as a shy and repressed child from an abusive family background but it goes way over the line and into gratuitous at thereafter. Other things like Travolta's performance, the sequence of the prom decorating, and the shopping scene bothered me less, but I get where you are coming from on them. Despite its flaws, though, I still consider this movie to be a classic. One reason, which you mentioned, is Sissy Spacek's performance. She is so, so good in this. 
It's one of the few times I've ever seen an adult actor convincingly play a teenager, as she absolutely nails the mix of awkwardness, self-consciousness, social anxiety, and fragile hope that I remember as defining that period of my life. Yeah, for sure. Another, which you more glancingly touched on, is the structure of the story, which I think is brilliant. For two-thirds of the movie's runtime, it's not a horror movie at all, but a high school drama that depicts the more realistic hardships of adolescence and makes you really empathize with the central character, which makes the gut punch at the end hit so much harder than it otherwise would. Mm -hmm. It would be much more forgettable if it was just a conventional slasher movie about a teenage girl with psychic powers. In the book, you know from the outset that something horrible happened at the prom, and also learn about Carrie's violent revenge fantasies before the massacre even happens. So this is a strength that's unique to the film adaptation. Thirdly, I think the movie does a great job of suggesting the differences between Carrie's own perceptions and reality. She's actually not hideously ugly, unlovable, or socially hopeless, and the movie hints at this not only by the way the other characters react to the prom prank, but by the way they talk about her throughout the story before it even happens. It occurred to me that Chris's antagonism toward her might be motivated by jealousy, but she struggles to see her own worth and develop confidence in herself because of the aforementioned issues, which I think is a very realistic, empathetic, and emotionally resonant portrayal of a teenage self-esteem struggles and adds on an additional layer of tragedy to the ending. Mm -hmm. Fourthly, the themes are pretty timeless. Both the book and the movie came out before I was born, but their depictions of bullying, abuse, and teenage cruelty to people who are different or don't fit in really rang true to my own elder millennial experience of adolescence. And they ring true to the experiences of my brother, who's a high school teacher and has to deal with them from that perspective now, and now a college-aged cousin who's an amazing young woman and thankfully doing very well at this point, but who dealt with abuse, bullying, and self-esteem issues when she was younger. Every time I read a news story about a teenager committing violence against others or themselves because of bullying or rejection of who they are by their peers or family members, I think of this movie, which I believe was one of the first to deal with these societal issues so frankly. I, at least definitely in like a modern context, I think. Mm -hmm. I, I actually don't know. That would be I'm sure there's there's been you know quite a bit of um ink spilled about that specific topic and, and media yeah. that has you yeah. know, media and stories and stuff that have covered that kind of thing. Um but yeah, it's interesting. I, I do wonder if this is maybe one of the first sort of big like yeah, um, yeah bully kid bully kid gets head. revenge kind of stories. Yeah. Off the top of my head, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. Finally, that last scene deserves some credit for its place in film history. It's not only an iconic jump scare. As far as I know, it basically invented the idea of disrupting the quiet coda scene at the end of there the movie <laughs> with a sudden jolt. And I think you can trace not only the practice of horror movies ending with the now cliched, it's over, or is it, final shot. But also things like MCU movies recontextualizing their stories or sequel baiting with stingers to that moment. So yeah, I acknowledge it's a flawed masterpiece, but I still think it's a masterpiece. And I will stand by the high grade I gave it on Letterboxd and IMDb. I'm, I'm sorry for laughing, but the fact that you wrote a review for this movie on Letterboxd is the least surprising thing I've ever read after reading your entire <laughs> comment. And I, I don't mean that as a negative. It's just very funny to me. This is the most Letterboxd review I've ever read. Uh, I mean that as a compliment, genuinely. 
Um, finishing up, Greg said, uh, because I think its strengths vastly outweigh its weaknesses, real as the latter are. No, I agree entirely. Like I said, that, that was our basically my, you know, I think mm-hmm. both of our kind of final judgment was that, yeah, it's it's flawed, but it is it, there's a reason it's a classic yeah. and, and considered a masterpiece of horror because it's just, yeah, it's when it works, it works. It really works. So awesome. Very good comment. Thank you very much, Greg. Over on Twitter, we had nine votes for the book, three for the movie, and one listener couldn't decide. April Edmansky said, I first saw this movie as a preteen. I've always loved it. The hand at the end scared me so much when I first saw it. I did read the book later, but literally all I remember is The Shadow Exploded. What? Um, that's one of the the titles of one of the like the book is divided into books. Mm. And that's I think the title of like the last segment. It's a good, it's a good, yeah, it's a great little, like, like, that's a great, like, um, if that was the title of a something, I'd, mm-hmm. I would be intrigued. Yeah. The shadow exploded is, is one of those like three word sentences. that's like says nothing, but implies <laughs> a lot maybe, or like makes you want to know more. Uh, April went on to say, I adore this film, but the first two thirds is only okay. Carrie is what started my love for De Palma's Ooh, movies. Okay. He has a distinct style, much of most of which comes yes. from Hitchcock. Yes. He's trashy and gratuitous, and I love it. Yep. It's it, that's kind of the reason why I love Baz Luhrmann. I was about to say he's, I, he's I, trashy I, and gratuitous, and I love tr- it. Truly, surely, <laughs> April must love Baz Luhrmann. I think she's mentioned. <laughs> I know she's commented on. I think on our mm-hmm. Gatsby episode or something. I think she did mention liking Baz Luhrmann. It's interesting to watch his mainstream 90s movies, Mission Impossible, The Untouchables, etc., and see what De Palma stuff he sneaks in there. Slow motion, split screen, Dutch angles, split diopter. Three of those things are fine. (laughs) (laughs) He has done some hack fraud stuff. The ending of Dress to Kill completely rips off Carrie. But Body Double, 1984, which is basically male gaze, the movie, (laughs) is in my top five favorite films. I don't know. I'm just into it. Look, you can if you if you realize you can you can like obnoxious, terrible garbage, like not garbage necessarily. But you can like, you know, deeply problematic things, you know, if you can if you recognize what's going on there and can kind of understand mm-hmm. the context with with, within and yeah and yeah. grapple with it and kind of you know yeah it's not like you can't enjoy that stuff yeah for it's sure fine. i enjoy a lot of problematic yeah i enjoy things. tons of problematic <laughs> things it's fine um uh, april's last comment here was as for the sped up suit buying scene the only explanation i have is De palma was doing that in his earlier films he obviously dropped it later on Okay, so I guess that was like a stylistic thing that he was doing and then stopped doing. <laughs> Maybe he realized it was it was it's hacky. nothing. It's nothing. If you're gonna do it, he should have done it more. Is my only critique. Yeah, he, like it's yes, just, it's, yeah. It, it was oddly placed and oddly utilized and too and, short. And yeah, just, it's just again, if you're gonna do it, at least do it. Do we, do we it. already said this in yeah. episode a thousand times. So, but yeah, if you're gonna do it, do it. Don't just like kind of do it. Like it's like a it's like a, like yeah, I don't know. It's like a weird little sneeze in the middle of the movie. It's just like, <laughs> come on, just let it out. He burped. Yeah. Uh, next comment on Twitter was from Cinema Limbo, who said, I read the book when I was 18, and my abiding memory is boiling anger at the way Carrie is mistreated and wishing she could escape from it all. King's finest work, probably. 
Probably. Let's throw a little probably on there at <laughs> the end just to be safe. I mean, <laughs> who among us has read King's entire body of work? How could you say for sure? I don't even know if Stephen King has read all of Stephen <laughs> King's entire work. Our next comment was from Warren Bedinsky. Or at least Shirley doesn't remember oh, all, of his, yeah. all of his work. Probably not. Yeah. Um, Warren said, haven't read or watched this version, though I did enjoy the remake. Uh, Warren coming out with the, yeah. the unexpected opinion. It was like a horror movie version of an X-Men movie. I mean, and as a fan of those movies and horror, it kind of worked, especially the extended version. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I wonder if the extended, I wonder if, I wonder if that's one of those movies, because I, I haven't really read or seen mm -hmm. anything about the the remake. I wonder if the extended like director's cut or whatever is considered like good. Yeah. Every now and then there will be one of those movies where... The, like the theatrical know, the release, theatrical release got panned. like hacked to shit by studios yeah. or whatever and then the the director's cut is actually like hey, this is actually pretty good like famously um kingdom of heaven a uh -huh. ridley scott movie the theatrical version i've not seen either but according to the, a lot of people on the internet the theatrical version is like absolute garbage but the or at least not very good but his director's cut of it is like incredible mm -hmm. um so yeah it's it's not uncommon for that to be the case or not unheard of for that yeah. to be the case. Yeah. Interesting. Um, Kelly also left some comments about the 2013 remake on Patreon that I did not include here because this is already, already a, a very comments, long yeah. section. Um, but her thoughts were interesting. Did she as like well. it or not like it? Um, I remember? think so. If I'm remembering she right, I think she did. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Kelly, if I'm misremembering <laughs> that, I apologize. <laughs> Our last comment on Twitter was from Matthew Ty, who said, the found media of the novel brings to mind classics like Dracula. It's amazing hmm. that Stephen King created such a perfect piece of literature at such a young age. How old was he when he wrote this? Um, Do you know? I don't know off the top of my head, but it was his first published novel, okay. so he was pretty young still. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't realize that uh, he was like a young, a young person when this one came out. I'm trying to do a quick Google search. Born in 47, and this was. This came out in, oh, that's not, oh, there's a whole separate Stephen King bibliography on Wikipedia because <laughs> he's written too many things. Yep. Novels, 1974. So he was 28. Seven, wait, what did I say, 76? Or no, 46? Seven, four, uh, what year did I say I he was born? I thought you said 44. Did you say 46? I said 47. And it was 74. So. 27 yeah yeah okay I mean, that's kind of young it's, it's not yeah. like it's not so young that i'm like whoa no it's not so young that it's completely mind-blowing but it is you but know. it is fairly young still yeah. yeah yeah i wasn't making anything good at 27 <laughs> no <laughs> but there are people who do it's yes. not like super uncommon so um over on instagram we had two votes for the book and six for the movie and total individual said book although both are really good which was basically my thoughts as well. There you go. <laughs> uh, but our listener polls winner actually shocked me. Yeah. I, no, I, I was, was surprised. I was incredibly too. surprised. The winner was the book Yeah, with 21 votes to the movies, 13 um, plus our two listeners who couldn't decide. Very interesting. I really was not expecting. I that. really expected. I expected my final verdict to be more controversial. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and for the movie to, to win out easily. So I'm, I'm very surprised. Yeah. 
All right. We have a learning thing segment this week, and we're learning about Catherine Patterson. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. Short and sweet learning segment. We sweet. bang Let's through this. Uh, Catherine Patterson is an American writer best known for her children's novels, um, including uh, Jacob Have I Loved, The Great Gilly Hopkins, and Bridge to Terabithia. Those are probably her three most well-known novels. Um, Patterson's novels often contain themes considered to be more adult, um, especially for their respective time periods that they were written in, um, published in, such as death, emotional abuse, absentee parents. She was kind of writing about some like hard-hitting stuff at a time that it wasn't especially common to right. write that way for children, um, which also resulted in a lot of her books being on banned book lists, and we love that. Mm -hmm. uh, Patterson was born in China in 1932. Um, her parents were Presbyterian missionaries. Um, the family fled China at the onset of the Japanese invasion in 1937, and they returned to America for the duration of World War II. Um, but Patterson's first language was actually Chinese, and she initially struggled with learning to read and write in English. Yeah, I mean, I, for as far as I know, those two languages are about maybe yeah, pretty, one of the hardest different. to go from one to the yeah. other. It's not ex not exactly similar in, yeah. in particular, not, uh, in a lot of ways. Um, as an adult, Patterson wanted to return to China as a missionary, but its borders were closed to Western citizens at that time. So at the suggestion of a friend, she lived for a time in Japan instead. And while she was there, she studied both Japanese and Chinese culture and history, which influenced many of her works. Um, not the one that we're going to talk about, but many of them. Uh, her first children's novel, The Sign of the Chrysanthemum, was published in 1973, and it is a work of historical fiction oh. set in the Japanese medieval period. Sounds fun. It does. I've I've never read any of her like um, Japanese or, yeah. or Chinese-inspired books. Um, but it, yeah, that sounds interesting. Uh, Patterson is also a very decorated author. Uh, four, uh, four different books that were published in from 1975 to 1980. Uh, she won two Newbery medals in that time and two national book awards. And those are two of the, like the most prestigious awards yeah, right. that you can win as a children's author. She's also one of only four people to win both of the biggest international awards in children's literature. She won the Hans Christian Andersen Award for Writing in 1998 and the Astrid Lindgren Memorial Award in 2006. Um, and those are both like body of work, like collective career awards. Um, oh, OK. I was wondering. I was like, yeah. what, what for what? <laughs> for for her career. Gotcha. Okay. Um, she was also awarded the NSK Nostat Prize for Children's Literature in 2007 and the Laura Ingalls Wilder Medal in 2013. And I, I believe both of those are also, like, career awards. Mm -hmm. uh, Catherine Patterson is still alive. She is 91 years old as of this past Halloween. She, her, her birthday birthday's is Halloween. Halloween. Yeah. Queen. <laughs> uh, her last published book came out in 2017, so I'm not sure how much she's right. writing at this yeah. point. Um, but as of 2022, she was vice president of the National Children's Book and Literacy Alliance. So All right. go off, queen. There you <laughs> go. <Fair>. Good for <laughs> her. All right. Well, let's learn about probably her most famous book, Bridge to Terabithia. 
Bridge to Terabithia is a 1977 children's novel. I did not know it was that old. Yes, I'm being honest. I had no idea it was that old. It's it's just been an enduring classic. Yeah, I I literally would have assumed it was like from the 90s or something. But Uh, written by Catherine Patterson, as we've established, um, and the novel won the 1978 Newbery Medal. So Catherine Patterson, uh, as an adult, lived for a time in Tacoma Park in Maryland. And the novel was inspired by an incident that happened during that time. Um, on I August, also have a note about this. We'll get to yeah. it. Yeah. On August 14th, 1974, her son David's best friend, Lisa Christina Hill, died after being struck by, struck by lightning um, in Bethany Beach, Delaware. And she was only eight years old. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the idea for this novel kind of grew out of that tragedy. Uh, the name of the imaginary kingdom of Terabithia is similar to that of the Narnian island Terabinthia, um, obviously created by C.S. Lewis for the Narnia novels. Similar is, similar is one way to put that. It's Or almost identical, <laughs> almost identical is another way yes. to put that. <laughs> um, of that, uh, Patterson was quoted as saying in 2005, um, quote, I thought I had made it up. Then, rereading The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, I realized that I had probably gotten it from the uh, island of yeah, Terabinthia. Almost assuredly. That, but almost assuredly, yes. However, Lewis probably got that name from the Terabinth tree in the Bible. So both of us pinched Jeez. from somewhere else, probably unconsciously. Yeah, it's fine. Yes. All art is stolen. Yes, all art is stolen. That I is mean, true. Well, to, except, well, okay, we're not, okay, it's a whole different thing. That's a thing. whole different thing, yeah. We're not going to get into this, like, another, a different topic. But yes, it, it, when people are doing it, all art is stolen. It's fine. The novel also makes a direct reference to the Chronicles of Narnia when Leslie lends the novels to Jess, um, as well as an indirect allusion to the Chronicles of Prydain. Um, which we covered mm-hmm. earlier mm-hmm. this year. And I don't remember that. It's been also been years and years and years. I read this book in like the fifth grade, I think. Um, years and years since I read this book. Um, but I don't remember what that illusion was. So I'm very interested to see if I can catch it this time around. Mm-hmm. Now that I've actually yeah, say, read some recently, of the Chronicles fairly. of Perdania. Uh, at the time of the book's publication, Kirkus Reviews said, quote, Patterson, who has already earned regard with her historical fiction set in Japan, proves to be just as eloquent and assured when dealing with contemporary American children and Americans of very different backgrounds at that. Very Kirkus Review thing to say, I feel like. Um, in a 1986 retrospective essay about the Newbery Medal winning books from 1976 to 1985, literary critic Zena Sutherland wrote of Bridge to Terabithia, quote, the poignant story is all the more effective because Patterson lets Jesse express his grief and guilt rather than telling readers that he feels them. There is no glossing over. There is no reaching for dramatic effect. Uh, The novel's content has been the frequent target of censorship. Uh, Challenges stem from death being part of the plot. Insane. Jesse's frequent use of the word Lord outside of prayer. That makes sense to me. Uh, (laughs) Allegations that it promotes secular humanism, New Age religion, occultism, and Satanism, (laughs) and for use of offensive language. All right. Uh, You already (laughs) sold me. You already sold me on the book. Right? (laughs) 
<laughs> I, I already want to read it. I already it. wanted to read it. <laughs> now I'm finding out to promote secular humanism and Satanism. <laughs> Sign me up. Uh, the novel is often featured in English studies classes in uh, countries outside of America, um, including Ireland, Singapore, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the Philippines, Ecuador, the United Kingdom, Costa Rica, Panama, South Africa. Um, and 2012, the novel... So, so English-speaking. Yeah, English-speaking. Countries. But like, yeah. Yeah. Um, in 2012... Or, well, I don't know if Panama is, but most of those countries, I think, have, or have large portions of English-speaking people. Anyway, sorry. You're right. In 2012, <laughs> the novel was ranked number 10 among all-time best children's novels in a survey published by a school library journal. Um, and aside from the 27 to 20, 2007 film that we'll be discussing, the novel was also adapted as a TV movie by hmm. PBS in 1985, which I did not know. I didn't know that. I had either. no idea it had been adapted before. Um, and Wikipedia also says, uh, quote, a, sta a musical stage adaptation entitled The Bridge to Terabithia is listed for sale by stageplays.com, credited to Patterson and Stephanie S. Tolan another children's writer. Um, so I guess there's also a stage version that's maybe never been actually produced. Or at least maybe not produced like professionally. Maybe. But, like maybe like schools yeah. do it or something. You know what I mean? I don't like, know. Maybe. It's interesting because I, I, we get notes fairly often about like, oh, there was also a stage version of this. Right. Um, but that's the first time I've ever seen it like stated like that. My guess is to me that sounds like it's one of those places where like schools can buy. Mm-hmm plays or whatever essentially to like do at you know yeah. like your high school or whatever and that maybe maybe it's never been done professionally or right. something but has been done on like you know high schools and middle in, schools in places where it wouldn't show up as like <laughs> this show was done off broadway and right. you know in 2008 <laughs> or whatever like it's just yeah if anyone's school has ever done a musical production of bridge to terabithia let us know I'd be very interested to see it all right, let's learn now a little bit more about Bridge to Terabithia, the film. This winter, when you go looking for adventure, be prepared to find more than you ever imagined. to Terabithia. Bridge to Terabithia is a 2007 film directed by Gabor Chupo, who is the creator of Rugrats. Get ready to have your childhood rocked here. <laughs> creator of Rugrats, the Wild Thornberry, if you're a millennial at least, uh, yeah. the Wild Thornberries, Rocket Power, as told by Ginger and Ah Real Monsters, among working on other stuff, but he created all of those shows, which were so like... So he created, like, Nickelodeon's, Nickelodeon's entire lineup entire line for the 90s. For, yeah, cool. the 90s, which is, like, <laughs> I was like I, all some of those shows are some of my favorites as a kid. Rocket Power, yeah. Rugrats, and Ah Real Monsters were three of my favorite shows when I was younger. Uh, the film was written by David L. Patterson, uh, who is known for writing The Great Gilly Hopkins, uh, Love and Ludlow, uh, and is also the son of mm. uh, Susan, or what was her name? Catherine Patterson. Catherine Patterson. It was also co-written by Jeff Stockwell, who wrote the adaptation of A Wrinkle in Time that we did way back, way back in the day, and The Ottoman Lieutenant. 
The film stars Josh Hutcherson, Anna Sophia Robb, Bailey Madison, Zoe Deschanel, Robert Patrick, and Latham Gaines, among others. It has an 85% on Rotten Tomatoes, a 74 on Metacritic, and a 7.2 out of 10 on IMDb. And it made $137 million against a budget of $17 million. Although I read a comment somewhere, or somewhere in something, I saw something about it struggling at the box office. That doesn't seem particularly that doesn't like sound struggling. like it struggled. Now that's but maybe worldwide over time. Like yeah, maybe it maybe it was a slow a burn, very very slow, making making its money back kind of thing. I don't know, but that doesn't seem terrible <laughs> considering even if you double the the budget to forty million for advertising, that's still you know mm-hmm. not made a hundred million. It doesn't seem terrible, but I don't know. Fucking Hollywood accounting. Who knows. <laughs> The film was produced by Walden Media, which has brought us uh, actually several films that we've done already, including the Chronicles of Narnia films, Holes, and Ramona and Beezus. I'm looking at their list. There are quite a few that I'm sure we'll be doing in the future. They do mm-hmm. tons of because obviously Walden books. Yeah. I assume right, is, yeah, right, right. I assume they're like I assume they're related in some way. But they do lots of uh, book adaptations. Uh, so, Walden Media President Kerry Granat uh, recommended uh, Gabor Chupo as director, despite concerns from other people that Chupo had never directed live action. As I mentioned, he basically was completely just an animation guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but Granat, Granite, or Granat, I don't know how to pronounce this guy's name, said that, quote, it didn't worry him in the least. Uh, and Chupo, uh, on his, for his account, had been wanting to work on a live action film for quite a while, but had he had said up until this point that, quote, he didn't like anything until I read this book, end quote, uh, saying that he found this book both beautiful and moving. As many people do. Yeah. Uh, another interesting thing that I found that I thought was fascinating is that uh, the cinematographer for this film, Michael Chapman, the, uh, this was his final film before he retired. Michael Chapman shot Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, The Lost Boys, Scrooge, The Fugitive, Space Jam, and like dozens of other, mm. like a super crazy diverse filmography. Like I can't fathom working on Taxi Driver and Space Jam, like being the <laughs> cinematographer for both of those films is so, so fascinating to me. They're just so different. Um, but yeah, uh, cinematography, huge overarching cinematography career. Um, but apparently he mentioned in the, the film commentary for this or the DVD commentary for this movie that he retired after this film because he wanted his last film to be a good one. And he said, quote, this is such a beautiful story and exact, and it's exactly the kind of movie I want to do at this time in my life, end quote. So producer and screenwriter David L. Patterson, as we mentioned earlier, is the son of the novel, uh, the novel's author. Uh, and his name was actually featured on his dedication page because, as you mentioned, the story is based on his real-life best friend, Lisa Hill, who was struck by lightning and killed when they were both eight. Uh, so Patterson went on to ask his mother, Catherine Patterson, if he could write a screenplay of the book. And she did uh, eventually agree, saying, quote, not only because he's my son, but also because he's a very good playwright. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but Patterson would have difficulty marketing the screenplay, uh, uh, mostly because of the fact that one of the main characters, you know, that Leslie, yeah. the, one of the main characters dies, which says, I knew that going into this is one of those ones where I don't really know much about this, but I did know that the yeah. one of the main characters dies and that that's like the whole thing. Uh, he would say of that, quote, if you can believe this, I did meet with some companies that asked if I could just hurt Leslie a little bit. Put her in a light coma and then bring her out. End quote. Oh, a light coma. <laughs> yeah, just a little light coma. Uh, but for him, the most important thing was to keep the spirit of the book alive. 
uh, while also transforming it from a novel from quote a novel that takes place mostly in the characters' heads to a dynamic visual medium end quote. Uh, so the first person that was cast for the film was Anna Sophia Robb as Leslie Burke, and Robb actually wrote Chupo a quote beautiful and heartwarming letter that expressed her love for the book and the character of Leslie. And Chupo said that he cast her because, quote, her letter, her enthusiasm, and her love of the material. So this is one of those ones which we get every now mm-hmm. and then where, like, some actor or something is like, I want to do this. And they, like... Yeah. I want I want <laughs> that role. You know, they, like, go out and, and really, really sell themselves hard for the role. Contra- contrarily, uh, Josh Hutcherson was not the first choice for the role of Jesse. Uh, but <laughs> this is literally a direct quote from Wikipedia. Quote, but they settled with him because they felt the chemistry between him and Anna Sophia Robb was good enough. I love that it says settled with him. That's literally what it says. It's settled <laughs> for him. I was like, all right, I'm sure he's fine. Like, Josh Hutcherson's an okay actor. I don't know, whatever. Uh, Chupo, uh, in the process of directing, would say, quote, it was a very conscious decision from the beginning that we're not going to overdo the visual effects because of the story's integrity and the book's integrity. And that they tried to do the absolute minimum, which would be required to put what we what you see in the book or, you know, read Mm -hmm. in the book into the movie. They didn't want to go over the top with like visual and special effects and stuff. Uh, So some of the creatures that show up in Terabithia were inspired by creatures um, specifically from where to go. My thing just jumped down. Hold on. I'm sorry. The creatures in Terabithia were inspired by creatures uh, and characters specifically both from Terry Gilliam and Ridley Scott's films. Uh, who both have quite a few films with some pretty interesting character uh, creatures and what's that sort of thing. And the creatures themselves were designed and rendered by Weta Workshops in New Zealand, which is where this film was filmed. A really interesting random thing. The film was originally set to be scored by Alison Krauss, but she decided to step down. Uh, but she was she did remain involved as a songwriter. Um, I could not find why she stepped down, but mm. for some reason she decided to step down from scoring the film and Aaron Zygman took over, who is actually most known for his score on The Notebook. Hmm. Uh, fun facts that I thought were really fun. Uh, due to the <laughs> fact that there are no squirrels in New Zealand, all squirrel shots were either pre-recorded or digitally added in. Gotta get them squirrels in there. Yeah. Uh, so apparently the promotion for this film was met with a fair amount of criticism uh, and controversy, and the filmmakers actually distanced themselves from the advertising campaign for the film, uh, saying that it deliberately misled and made the film seem to be about like a fantasy world. Uh-huh. Uh, David Patterson was really surprised by the trailer, but he understood like the reasoning behind it saying, quote, although there is a generation that is very familiar with the book, if you are over 40, then you probably haven't. And we need to reach them. Everyone who read the book and sees the trailer says, what is this? This is nothing like the book. What are you doing, Dave? And I say, you know, what you're seeing is 15 seconds of a 90 minute film. Give me a little leeway and respect. Go see it and then tell me what you think. End quote. <laughs> and then getting into some reviews, uh, James Bernadelli of Real Re- uh, Real Views called Bridge to Terabithia, quote, easily the best family feature of the early year. Uh, and Hornaday, writing for the Washington Post, praised the script for being, quote, utterly re- recognizable and authentic uh, and thought that both Rob and Hutcherson were perfectly cast. She also wrote that the final five minutes, uh, she did go on to write, though, that the final five minutes succumbed to oversweet sentiment, uh, but that viewers would remember the film's warmth and respect with which it pays homage to first love. 
Uh, writing for the Village Voice, Jessica Gross commended director Chupo for omitting cutesy tween stereotypes and felt that Jess's relationship with his father ever elevated Bridge to Terabithia from, quote, a good mo- kids movie to a classic contender. And then for the New York Times, Jeanette Katsalis believed that the fantasy was kept in the background to, f- quote, find magic in the everyday and thought Chupo directed, quote, like someone intimate with the pain of being different, allowing each personality more than a single characteristic. End quote. Uh, not every single review was positive, though. Uh, writing for us today, Claudia Puig wrote that, quote, for a movie that uh, about the power of imagination, Bridge to Terabithia is not as clever as you would hope. Uh, called it a serviceable translation of the novel, but thought that the adult characters were caricatured. Uh, she also found the real-life portions of the movie derivative and simplistic, but thought that Jess's emotional term- tumult uh, felt, quote, powerfully authentic, and that this is where the film finds its truth and soul, end quote. So even in the criticism, found some, some things they liked. And then for the Wall Street Journal, critic Joe Mer- Morgenstern, which I thought was funny because he's a Morgenstern, um, which that's... Um, S. Morgan Stern, S. Morgan Stern of the yes. Princess Bride, yeah, yeah. yes. Felt that despite occasional misuses of enchantment, quote, brief spasms of overproduced fantasy, end quote, the novel's screen adaptation was told with agreeable simplicity in between computer-generated monsters. Morgan Stern was a little disappointed with the performances by the young members of the cast, uh, which he said were appealing but unpolished, and he also thought Chupo lacked experience directing actors, and that although De Chanel was the best adult performer, she seemed self-directed. End quote. So, how would you possibly know that? Yeah, just I, how insane. Would you possibly insane, know an insane, an insane thing to say as a critic, in my opinion. Yeah. Oh, De Chanel seems great, but she seems self-directed. What are you? Ta- were you on set? Like, what are you even? <laughs> it just doesn't even. I don't know. Unless De Chanel is just is just being zoe de chanel maybe yeah but it's, this is early enough that there's not i don't know if there's enough out there right of her to to know that i don't know it just seems seems like a weird thing to say anyways katie where can people watch bridge to terry bithia well as always you can check with your local library or a local video rental store if you still have one. Uh, I think there's a good chance that your library mm-hmm. probably has I a would copy think, of this. Yeah, I would think so. Uh, if not, you can stream this with a subscription to Disney Plus, or you can rent it for around four bucks from Amazon, Apple TV, YouTube, Vudu, or Direct TV. There you go. Uh, yeah, I'm excited to watch this one. I uh, well, I mean. As excited as I can be to watch something that's probably going to make me cry, but um, <laughs> yeah, it, uh, yeah, no, I, 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 this is one of those movies that you hear about quite a bit, or books and mm-hmm. movies, and I've never read it, I've never watched you never it, never read it, Mm-mm, never read it, never watched it. Um, again, I know the main spoiler, but like, right. I don't really know anything else about it. Uh, so yeah, I'm interested to see see what I think. Yeah, it, um, like, it's got very good reviews. Generally yeah, I'm speaking. I'm excited to revisit this one. Like I said, I, I read the book probably in like the fourth or fifth grade, mm-hmm. um, and I don't think I've revisited it at all since then. And I, I remember seeing the movie in theaters, but I have not watched it since that time. So yeah, well, there you go. We'll be talking about Bridge to Terra, <laughs> Bridge to Terabithia in one week's time. And until that time, guys, gals, non-binary pals and everybody else. Keep reading books, watching movies, and keep keep being awesome. awesome.